Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I chat with China analyst and author Mark O'Neill about the Columban Sisters, an Irish order of nuns that was founded in Ireland in 1922 to serve women in China. There's the Columban Brothers too, which was an order of priests set up four years earlier. The aim of both orders was to evangelize in China and bring Catholicism to more Chinese. This would be done through healthcare and education, as well as through church services. The nuns would travel to Shanghai, head out to different cities in China and work in various communities. This was until the communist revolution in 1949, when all missionaries were thrown out. Many of them came to Hong Kong, and so the work of the Columban sisters continued here. I began by asking Mark O'Neill to explain what the Columban part of the name of the Columban sisters means. Well, St. Columba is a patron saint who was involved in evangelizing Ireland, so it's a very good name. There are many different religious orders, and they have different objectives. Some of them are medical orders, some are teaching orders, uh, some work only at home, but there are several missionary orders. So if we look at both the Columban brothers and sisters, uh, most of their work was outside of Ireland. So if you joined the Columban Sisters, you would expect to be sent abroad. So largely to China? Yes, well, latterly into other countries too, because since 1949, of course, it's not allowed to, to, to send foreign missions to China. But initially, that was the mission. So they're going to China from Ireland. That's incredible, isn't it? When you think back to when it's founded in 1922, of course, there would have been newspaper reports, this sort of thing, but the actual nuns who were going, what would they have known of China ahead and would they have already been trained in Pudonghua? Well, this is a question I ask myself all the time because Ireland was independent only in 1922. It was a poor, largely agricultural country. Of course, there was no internet, there was no television. You know, these are young women who've grown up in a, in a very conservative, isolated environment. I mean, deeply religious, but with little knowledge of the outside world and little ability to find out about it. So you're quite right. Suddenly they're on a ship, they arrive in Shanghai. Here we are in Shanghai. But they're not going to live in Shanghai. They're going to be sent to inland areas. So I just can't imagine the, the, the shock they would have had, because you're right, first of all, they have to learn Chinese. And remember, in that time, Mandarin, you know, the national language, was not common, commonly spoken all around China. So if you were in Jiangxi, the people, the ordinary people, would speak with a Jiangxi dialect, or if you were in Wuhan, they would speak with the Wuhan dialect. So they worked with ordinary people. They didn't work with the elite or intellectuals. So they're going to these various areas. So perhaps they may have been taught some Mandarin or Pudonghua before they leave. Hmm. Um, they're then arriving, as you say, in Shanghai in a ship and then going throughout the, the Chinese mainland to evangelize. Um, what tools would they have had at their disposal? I mean, you know, in terms of teaching methods, was there by this time a, a Bible in Chinese? Oh, yes. Yes, oh, there was a Bible in Chinese. And remember, it's 1920s. So the Catholic Church has been there, you know, more than half a century. So in the major cities, there would be a church structure, there would be bishops, there would be priests. The Catholic Church tended to be foreign heavy, so the leaders would, would be largely foreigners, uh, but many of the priests would be Chinese. So there would already be a structure in which the nuns could fit. 
So there would be Catholic schools, there would be Catholic kindergartens, uh, probably Catholic hospitals. So, of course, this makes it much easier for the new arrival because there is already a system in place and they would have a school to go to, the school would already be running, there would be teachers, there would be a principal, there would be premises, and they would be a teacher probably in the beginning of English because that was the thing they could do most, most easily. So once they arrived there, it, it, you know, it was not so hard, but just the food, the living conditions, the customs of the people, the, the attitudes, the attitude towards women, I mean, everything has to be learned from nothing. So we can only marvel at the devotion of these nuns, that their faith was enough for them to face all these challenges and get over them. Yeah, there's a lot of isolation there. When these women went out, I mean, you'd have a certain amount arrive in Shanghai at a certain time. Then are they going out, say, like a school? Would that just be one nun or a group of nuns? Well, no, no, because they would be mostly in the cities. You have a religious community, so you have Catholic priests and nuns from abroad, and then you have Catholic priests, nuns and believers locally. So, no, they're not alone. They're in a community. And to deal with the problem of isolation, the orders would set up a house where the nuns would live together. So they would at least have other nuns with them together to support each other in their work. Now, they were involved not only in... I mean, obviously, evangelization was the, the aim, but uh, they were also involved in teaching and healthcare. Yeah, so this would be the two main uh, areas they worked in because, yeah, I mean, you've said it very well, if you just go in as an evangelist, I think most <laughs> ordinary Chinese wouldn't know what you're, you're talking about. I mean, there's no basis for understanding what you're saying. So these two, teaching and medicine, were, of course, the best way to approach Chinese people because... Chinese parents all wanted their children to be educated and a mission school at that time would be among the best schools in that town locality, especially if it offers teaching of English. So it would be very attractive for Chinese parents to send their children there, just as in Hong Kong. And then medical care is the same. I mean, in the late 19th century, uh, Chinese, most Chinese were very suspicious of Western medicine. I mean, these people coming in with knives and needles and anesthesia to knock you out. And what do, they, what, what do they do when you're unconscious on the bed? You know, it was very, very suspicious in the beginning. But by the 1920s, there were enough hospitals uh, running and uh, the Chinese had seen very clearly the benefits of Western medicine. So it was acceptable. So again, having a hospital is a very good way to evangelize because people, when they're sick, they, they want to be cured, so they go to the hospital, and the hospital gives you a platform with which you can approach people. And uh, in terms of the teaching at school, I mean, these would be young children, and, and what kind of subjects? The teaching of women had really only begun after the 1911 revolution. So most of the children would be boys in the beginning, so only girls would come later. So. Um, English, mathematics, Chinese, science, literature, primary school, secondary school. Secondary school as well at that stage? Yes, yes. But I mean, few, few, but uh, primary school mainly, but also secondary school. 
Interesting. So they were sort of providing, as you say, an education, also healthcare, and meanwhile looking to make new Christians in China. Yeah, I mean, the, the joke in missionary circles is the rice Christian. Have you heard that one? Um, you know, in a time of famine or food shortages, where do you get rice? Well, you, the church has rice, so you go to the queue up for rice, and when you come to the front of the queue, the nun says, are you a Christian? So to be sure you get the rice, you say yes. So that's, well, a rather crude description. but So that would be one, and then education Christian, <laughs> medicine Christian. So I don't think that's completely changed in some circles, I'm sure. Well, no, I mean, my, my wife tells me the story in the 1950s in Hong Kong. It's the same. I mean, her, mo her mother grew up in a village in the mainland. There was no missionaries there. And then she moves here, 1950s. Life is extremely difficult. Everything's in shortage. They're very, very poor. And so she joins the church for this reason. So they, they have goods that she needs. So my mother-in-law is not very devout in terms of you know reading lots of scripture or going to church every every sunday but yeah she's she's a believer so she was converted in those circumstances so you're right i'm talking with china analyst and author mark o'neill today about the irish columban sisters an order that was founded in ireland to serve women of china and that was founded in 1922 and from 1926 to 1949, the Columban sisters worked in mainland China, working primarily in healthcare and education. And of course, 1949 was the communist revolution when they were expelled. So in that period, 1926 to 1949, Mark, you were describing how across the mainland at various points, they were able to provide education and healthcare. How big were they as, a, as an order? The figure I have is for the Columban brothers, which is there were 130 of them in 1948. So I would estimate the number of Columban nuns perhaps be 100 at that time. So for one order in Ireland, that's a significant number of people. Now, as well as providing, as you say, mainland across the mainland education and uh, healthcare, they also had a school for Russian refugees in Shanghai. Yes, well, after the revolution in 1917, tens of thousands of Russians fled, and many of them went to Harbin, which is the nearest city to Russia in China. And this became the largest Russian city outside Russia. And there was a huge foreign community there. We've spoken before about the Jewish community, but there was a very big Russian community there. But after the Japanese occupation of Manchuria in 1931, many Russians left because the Japanese took over many of the occupations and the businesses in which they were involved. So many of them fled to, to Shanghai. So we, we now have in Shanghai thousands of Russian people and they don't have assets. You know, they had to leave their assets behind and uh, their life in China is extremely difficult. So one of the main aspects of the Clement sisters we can see throughout this story is you, you look at the people who are at the bottom, who are the most disadvantaged, the most in need of help. So they identify the Russian refugees in Shanghai as, as such a group. So they set up a school for them. And, of course, the Columban sisters from Ireland are Roman Catholics. But the Russian refugees, they follow the Byzantine rite. So, so that's orthodox, is it? Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly. I mean, there is some overlap. But out of deference to the Russians, the sisters hold services using the Byzantine rites, which is, I mean, I think is admirable because the Irish Catholic Church is very conservative and uh, you are not supposed to err in any respect at all. But out of deference to the, the, the refugees, they they had the, the services in the, in the rites that the refugees used. Now, the Columban Order comes to mainland China in 1926, works there until 1949, and was founded in Ireland in 1922 to serve women of China. Um, but what happens after 1949 with these, with these Columban sisters then? And how, how did that come? There's it just a widespread order coming out of Beijing, you're, you're to leave. Well, the, the new government expelled all the missionaries, so the nuns and the priests all had to go and some of the Columban brothers were put in prison for up to three years. So in a previous program, we've talked about Sister Mary Aquinas and Sister Gabriel O'Mahony, and they had left Ireland, and they were on a boat, and they were expected to spend their life in China. But the revolution happened while they were on the boat, so they arrive in Hong Kong, uh, they can't go to China, and then they end up in the Rutenji Sanatorium and they work on TB. So all the future Columbus sisters that come, they can't go to China, so they stay in Hong Kong, so they work in Hong Kong instead. So sisters Mary Aquinas and Gabrielle O'Mahony are quite instrumental in their work for tuberculosis, and um, and they do that at the Rutenji Sanatorium after they're, they're barred from going to mainland China, so they, they stay here in Hong Kong. So that's actually to Hong Kong's advantage in terms of, well, you know, treatment of TB, science behind TB. Yes, so these two nuns were very remarkable people and they were trained doctors. So this Rutenji sanatorium had just opened in, in Wan Chai and it was opened by a man who'd lost his daughter to TB. So it was a dedicated hospital to fighting TB. So these two doctors and other nuns with them who were nursing sisters, they went to this sanatorium. And yes, they were instrumental in fighting TB, which was the biggest killer in Hong Kong then. And at that time, everyone was frightened of anyone who had TB. So there was also a social aspect to this, that if you care for TB patients, you're doing something that others don't want to do. Even family members, you know, the community at large was very afraid of contracting it. So they were very compassionate to, to take them in and, and work on this. And their research became globally recognized because there were very many cases. They had a lot of opportunity for clinical research. And these two doctors published a lot of their research, and these were published in international journals and became used by doctors in other countries in uh, treating TB. And over the next 30 years, the incidence in TB fell, incidence of TB in Hong Kong fell dramatically. So it was a very remarkable success story. Aside from sisters Mary Aquinas and Gabrielle O'Mahony, who were both, as you say, qualified doctors working against tuberculosis in Rutenji's sanatorium here, uh, what other kind of work was being done by the Irish sisters? But also at that time, I presume that there's some Hong Kong sisters joining the Columban sisters. Yes, well, that's another theme of our story. In the 20s, 30s and 40s, hundreds of Irish women volunteered to be nuns, so there was a very big supply. But 
this supply began to fall from the 1970s. So by now, the Catholic community in Hong Kong was substantial. So, yes, there were uh, uh, Chinese nuns joining the order. So if, if we go on to today, nearly all the Columban sisters here are not Irish. They're from Hong Kong, mainland China, Taiwan, Korea, or the Philippines. So the next big project they undertook was 1966. They opened a Caritas clinic in Takuling in New Territories. Now, the purpose of this clinic was to serve mainland refugees because from 1966, the Cultural Revolution began, thousands of people were trying to escape from mainland. Uh, m many didn't make it, but some did. And th the people who made it would be living in very makeshift conditions in the new territories and had very limited or zero medical care. So they opened this clinic very close to the border, a remote place, very poor roads, and it was open 24 hours a day. I think they were quite limited in, in the care they could provide because they were nuns, they were nurses. But on Saturdays, two doctors came from the Rutenji Sanatorium and provided more sophisticated medical care. They also opened their kindergarten. So this set clinic was open for 20 years until 1986. Now, by 1986, the infrastructure of the new territories was much more developed. There were hospitals, there were clinics built there. So there was not so much need for it. But I think it tells us that the sisters, again, went to help the people at the bottom of society, the people most disadvantaged and the people no one else wanted to help. That's why they opened this clinic. So they're really looking for areas where people are in dire need and which isn't being covered by a government system or healthcare system here. And in the 60s, yes, I mean, the government would have also been a little bit overwhelmed by the number of uh, refugees who were coming in. And, uh, of course, you've got the start of the Cultural Revolution, so a difficult time for Hong Kong all round. But, as you say, these Columbus sisters see the, this need for the people who are, as you say, at the bottom of the pile for proper and often probably emergency health care as they're coming in. And I would imagine, again, that a, a number of those people that you'd have had malnutrition, you'd have had tuberculosis, again, being a problem. Yes, uh, and perhaps I'm stating the obvious here, but, you know, you're an Irish nun. The person you see in front of you has arrived from the mainland a week, a month ago, as you say, undernourished, in poor health, probably psychologically traumatized because of the, the journey. They may speak Cantonese, but they may speak a dialect of Cantonese that you're not so familiar with. They couldn't be more different to yourself, but your faith tells you you must care for them. And I remember when I was here in the 70s and I did interview some um, Irish doctors, and I said to them, did you speak Cantonese well? And some of them said they didn't. And I, I was incredulous, because how can you be a doctor and treat people with whom you cannot speak directly? In, in some sense, that's even more admirable, because you have to go through a translator. But never mind, you still want to help them and, and, and you know, offer your wisdom and advice to them. So um, I, I think the ones in this clinic, I cannot imagine that they were not Cantonese speaking, mm. because that was um, a different situation. 
So throughout the, as you say, from 66, where they're establishing uh, a Caritas clinic in Tarkuling, they then, they go on to really, you know, almost like they're specialising in education. Yes, so the next big project is the Leung Shek Chi College, which is a secondary school in Sao Maoping. And this is very much similar basis, because this is a refugee resettlement area, just as you mentioned. There's flood of people, the government cannot keep up, there's not a school for them. So they uh, build a school and the number of people coming to study there increases very quickly. So by 1980, they've got 750 children. And facilities in that area are limited. So it's not just a school. It becomes um, a place where adults can come and study. It becomes a place where the community can hold activities. So it becomes a very important institution for the whole area. And then in 1980, they're invited to take over a school of the Merinol sisters in Blue Pool Road. And this is quite different. This is a school that's been well established. It's got over a thousand students. It's so right. that's in Happy Valley? Yes. So that, that's already got a staff. It's, it's well established. So they take over this school as well. So they're running both the secondary school in Sao Mao Ping, but also the secondary school and then a primary school in a Blue Pool Road. How come they're, they're taking over Marinol place? I mean, that would have surely been run by Marinol sisters or brothers. Well, I, I've not uh, looked into the history of the school in detail, but I assume it's because the number of sisters was falling and they didn't have enough sisters to run it. As we move into the 1980s, uh, as we were saying, there's this transition from the Irish sisters who found this Columban order in 1922 and have served for decades over in mainland China and Hong Kong. And in 1988, the last of the original Irish sisters dies at the age of 87. So now we're very much an Asian Columban order. Yes, I mean, this is a turning point for the order. And this sister, she's not in good health at all, and she's preparing to go back to Ireland and live out her final days there. But she doesn't want to, because she's been here for so long. All her friends, all her connections are here. So she dies here. But yes, this is a turning point, because the number of vacations in Ireland has fallen dramatically. So now the sisters are largely from South Korea and the Philippines. And actually, since 2017, the head of the Columbans in Ireland is a South Korean sister. So it's something I've put on my to-do list. I don't know when I'll do it, but I'd like to go to this mother house in rural Ireland, you know, surrounded by trees and cows and beautiful green grass, and meet this uh, Korean sister who is the head of this Irish order. She's called Sister Susanna Choi. I'd love to meet her and, and, and have a photograph in this <laughs> rural Irish setting. But yes, this is the, the turn of history and evangelization of Korea has been one of the most remarkable stories of the 20th century. I mean, initially it was both Koreas. It was North Korea as well, but not since, since the communists took over. South Korea now sends more missionaries per head than any other country in the world. I mean, both Protestant and Catholics. Without them, the, the order would not have survived in Hong Kong. So it's South Koreans, Filipinos, and of course Chinese nuns also who've taken over the relay. So in the 1980s, 1990s, you've got this transition from 
Irish sisters to Asian ones, uh, so South Korean, as you say, Filipinas, uh, local Cantonese, among others, and, and also some from mainland China. What kind of work um, are they doing ahead of the handover, and how did they feel about the handover? Well, I think all of the Catholic institutions in Hong Kong were very uneasy about the handover because, the, as you know, in the mainland, the Catholic Church is split between those who belong to the state official church and those who don't recognize its authority. And we can call it the family church or the underground church. And in, this is an extremely controversial and extremely difficult issue so, given that the, the the PRC government has a very ambiguous attitude to the Catholic Church in, in China and is, is hostile to the Vatican, I mean those that don't recognize the official Chinese church, I think everyone here was uneasy what would happen here after the handover. So, the decision that the order took here was to hand over its schools and medical facilities which are, as it were, its brand, its big brand items, and hand them over to local institutions. So there's no sense that they're connected with foreigners. So, so they'd be run by Hong Kong Catholic institutions. Gives them a level of protection. That's quite a pragmatic approach, and probably the correct one. Oh, I think it's, yeah, I'm sure it's the correct one. But that didn't mean they left. I mean, they had a lot of other projects to do in Hong Kong, so they... Uh, did care of old people, they did prison visiting, they did outreach of AIDS and HIV patients. And from the late 80s, they were able to return to the mainland and do some services. So they would help young people with special needs and teach English. But, you know, working in the mainland is very problematic because you're not allowed to proselytize. That's the mission of the sisters. So you can carry out your work that is officially allowed, but anything else other than that has to be done very carefully and uh, discreetly. Now, I want to speak about one of their most successful projects in Hong Kong, which is this mission for sex workers. And I found this one of the most moving episodes in, in this story. And the lady that started this is a Scottish nun who joined the Columbus. She's called Sister Anne Gray. She arrived in 1985. She learned Cantonese. And from 1986, she began to take notice of the sex workers. She was walking around Mong Kok and Sham Shui Po. And the theme is the same. It's the people at the bottom, the people that no one is taking care of, the marginal people and do they need our help? So this is how the mission started. So she hung around. Initially it was very difficult because these women would, they would be in the doorways, they would be in corridors. They, they don't really want to talk to you. They want clients. They would take the client, they would come back. But they're very nervous of anybody else. Well, are you from the police? Are you from the government? So it was quite difficult in the beginning and of course these women would have pimps and the pimps would not want anyone interfering in what they were doing and initially she was very much helped by being um, a Guilau because if she's hanging around everyone assumes she doesn't speak Cantonese so she can be there and she can listen to what they're saying she can listen to what the clients are saying she can listen to what the pimps are saying 
uh, and no one would imagine that she would understand. So initially it was quite difficult, but gradually she's patient, uh, she makes contact with them, she explains who she is, what she would like to do, and gradually she wins their confidence. And of course what she discovers is that uh, these women are extremely vulnerable, some are married, some are not married, they're ignored by everyone. I mean, all the residents of the area knew what they were doing, but didn't want to have anything to do with them. And they very much needed help of all sorts. They needed health advice, they needed legal advice, and they needed a way out if they wanted. Was there another alternative life? And of course, they needed psychological help because they wanted to talk to people. But who could they talk to? There was no one for them to talk to. So gradually the sisters realized that they must set up a structure. So they found this organization called Reach Out, which means rights of entertainers in Asia to combat human oppression and unjust treatment. In 1993, they set this up. They get a donation from the jockey club of 3.8 million Hong Kong dollars. They rent premises in Yamade for a popcorn rent of one Hong Kong dollar a day. And then they have a place where people can go. And they're getting now 400 sex workers a month coming to see them. So the Reach Out still exists? Oh, yes. And it's a sort of recognized place where you can go. So you're, you're not only living in the shadows, in the corridors, you know. My thanks to Mark O'Neill talking there on the Columban Sisters, an order begun in Ireland in 1922. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.